The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons is with us for our weekly environment spot. Something we spoke to Geraldine Herbert, the motoring editor of the Sunday Independent, about briefly yesterday. I don't know what your take is likely to be on it. I can't imagine you'd agree with a motoring editor. But the idea that electric car grants are to be cut by 30% from July. What do you think of that? Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, I think it's that probably makes sense. I mean, the, the purpose of these grants really were to, I suppose they were sort of like training wheels for electric cars to ease them in and to, to take some of the sting. And of course, also to absorb the fact that new technology tends to be more expensive. So even a middling electric car has been maybe 5, 10, 15 grand more expensive than its uh, petrol diesel equivalent. And the grant was for €5,000. Up to a price of, I think, 60000 That's it? right. And, and, and in a sense, the market has taken care of a lot of these things. For example, what we see with these new uh, changes are that there's no change in the VRT relief, uh, which is maximum of five, five grand up to a 40 grand price point. Now, a while ago, there was nothing really below the 40 grand price point. So that was a moot point. Now there really is. There genuinely is. In fact, we're, we're beginning to see decent, you know, 450 kilometre range EVs coming in. Uh, maybe not this year, but maybe in the next year or so, uh, in the 20 to 25 to maybe high 20s mark. And at that point, the, especially when you take a total cost of ownership model rather than just a ticket price model, then EVs begin to really make just, sense. I, I know what you mean, but just explain that again, the difference between the ticket price and the total cost. Sure. I mean, the, the ticket price obviously is, is the thing that catches our eye. The, the, the 999, the thing we tend to be drawn to. But the reality is that you know when you when you buy a car you're signing up say you keep that car for 5 years you're signing up to running costs uh, and some of those costs the variable costs for example when you get a petrol or a diesel you're going to be paying substantial servicing costs you're going to be paying uh, obviously substantial fuel costs now you can you can factor those out over say a 5 year period and then you can compare those with basically in servicing match you're talking effectively electric cars and I can speak of this in personal experience effectively there is no servicing there's practically no moving parts there's no oil there's no grease there's no carburetor there's no gearbox there's no camshafts all of those fiddly bits that break they simply don't exist in an electric car. Effectively, you're riding around in a, in a, in a battery controlled by a computer. Right? And what has it done to your electricity bills? Well, obviously, my electricity bill has gone up, of course, to accommodate this, but I use nitrate electricity. So particularly, I, I use the, we charge the car between 2 and 4 a.m. every night. There's a super low rate. So we always... And will you get the car charged in two hours? Oh, no, no. That's like a trickle charge. That's just a top-up. If you need more, obviously, you let it run more. But the overall cost, the cost of doing that, even though electricity costs have really jacked up uh, I'm finding we're probably saving a couple of hundred euros a month on electricity costs versus if we were pouring diesel into it and that of course is before you take into account the damage done by pouring diesel into a car. What type of electric car do you have? It's a Tesla. You have a Tesla? Yes indeed. Okay, fair enough, right. That's an expensive motor. Well, I'd like to say it's. I did buy it second-hand, again, in the interests of... of uh, There's you know, very few second-hand electric vehicles become available. Yeah, well, it's my it's my second, second-hand Tesla. So, again, as you said, the price entry point on them is, is excessive. But when I first got into this about maybe five years ago, and I suppose, you know, they say if you talk the talk, Matt, you should walk the walk, or in this case, drive the drive. So I kind of felt I'll take the hit. At that time, uh, buying a new one was prohibitive so I got a second hand one it's still expensive but the running costs I saved a good few a good few grand and that in turn allowed me to trade down the other side of that of so course there's is a listener here saying you still have shock suspension tires etc that you have to pay for no sure yeah now the good news for example brake pads uh, they 
wear out at about three times less the rate of a of an internal combustion car because the braking uh, on it is is regenerating the battery. So you basically you don't use the brake pads. But you're right. Of course, there are moving parts. I didn't say there were no moving parts, but essentially they're down to, as you say, tires and shock absorbers. But the two or three thousand other moving bits that you have in a regular internal combustion car simply don't exist. Okay. And do you like it as a car to drive? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. Once you get used to it, it's smooth. And also, it has changed my driving style. I used to be, I'm sorry to say, and I'll just between ourselves, used to be little aggressive on the driving side. I get away. You I, wouldn't think. Just, that wouldn't be like you, John. No, would no, it? Just a little bit, right? Now, I don't know if it is the electric car or a couple of penalty points or a combination of the two. But in fact, what I do find is that you, the style of driving that you develop in an electric car is that you're kind of, you're basically out to harvest energy. So if you spot a traffic light 80 or 100 metres ahead, you basically let your throttle out and engine slide into it. So you're not kind of vrooming from one light to the other. So you get much knackier at managing the energy. And it's also, I, I get a kick out of getting the maximum range out of the car. Okay. But what about what Germany and Italy are up to to try and protect their uh, combustion engine car manufacturing business? Yeah, this is a really, really strange one. Uh, basically, the EU has been moving towards bringing in 2035 as the final cutoff point, the phase-out point for uh, the internal combustion engine, whether it's diesel or petrol. Now, 2035, Matt, that's a plenty of headroom, and, and everybody seemed to be on board about this. But pretty much at the last minute, the, the, the German motor industry, which are famously refractory, if I can use that word. They're famously uh, dug in the ditch, let's just say, famously opposed to any form of regulation. Germany, for example, is the only country, certainly in Europe and possibly in the world, that has no speed limits on its autobahns because of this car culture that they have in Germany. And we often think of the Germans as being kind of stolid and, you know, sensible. But for some reason, they're the thing that they really get off on is not all of them, sorry if anyone being offended, but is big, powerful, fast cars roaming around and that percolates into their politics because the motor industry in Germany is politically incredibly powerful and they're throwing their weight around here and trying to scrap it. But of course, they're pretending that this is about uh, something they call e-fuels, Matt. These are not even biofuels. These are some kind of magical fuels that are apparently going to be created using electricity and uh, voodoo. I'm not sure, but basically all kinds of things. But if you look at, for example, the calculation is that all the planned e-fuel projects worldwide would, would manage to cover about 10% of the current German demand for aviation, chemical and shipping fuels. In other words, this is a fool's errand. It's it's an attempt by the German motor industry, which has been really slow to to, to get behind the eight ball on this. If you take the big German brands, the well-known German brands... Okay, you've got Mercedes, BMW, BMW, Audi, Porsche and so on. Volkswagen. Yeah, interesting. Probably your listeners would probably immediately recognise that of that group. Really the only one that has taken any steps in this is Audi. And let me just tell you what the the, uh, CEO of Audi said about this in relation to to Germany. He said, we, Audi, have made a clear decision. We're phasing out the internal combustion engine in 2033 because the EV is the most efficient for individual mobility. And the other thing that the industry is saying, or parts of the industry is saying, this is also, by the way, supported by other companies like Volvo and Ford. So this is very much a weird German solo run. And it's not even, it's not even unanimously supported within Germany. And the point that the Audi uh, CEO is making, Matt, is that this is introducing insecurity. The industry doesn't know 
in 10 years' time what they're going to be manufacturing. And a nightmare scenario for the industry is that half their production lines are internal combustion, the other half are EV. Because, of course, that's like extending the life of the horse and trap, you know, into the 1950s or 1970s. It would be ridiculous. You have two separate production lines. And and essentially, at a certain point, one has to be phased out and the other has to continue. Another important point to make here is that China is currently rolling out it's reckoned to be bringing about another 80 electric vehicles to the market over the next 12 months. Now, you'll remember what happened to Nokia back in 2007, 2008. Nokia was the world's number one phone company by a mile. Within five years, it was dead in the water. Why? The smartphone came along. Nokia said, don't worry about the smartphone. It's only a fad. It'll never catch on. And this is the the car industry. The internal combustion car industry is facing its Nokia moment, or indeed its Kodak moment, as it's often described as well, famously for that company that failed to grasp that digital photography would wipe out film. And sometimes... It can be a disadvantage, Matt, to have, uh, to be the big dog in the fight because you're so invested in your technology and in your prestige that you, you forget to change and companies like Tesla come around and kick your ass. Listener here says that JCB is currently trialling hydrogen-powered internal combustion engine beyond proof of concept currently at pre-production level. Yeah, hydrogen is an interesting one. The only hydrogen that makes any sense whatsoever is what's called green hydrogen. This is hydrogen that is produced uh, directly from renewable energy. So if you have excess wind or excess solar and you uh, hydrolyze that into hydrogen, that makes sense. But any other form of hydrogen is simply... uh, Again, it's a fool's errand. Now, again, it's really important to understand, for example, Volvo, I mentioned them earlier, their, their truck division, Matt, are bringing out electric trucks, like full-scale electric trucks. So the electric route on this, and I suppose the key thing to understand about electric, why, why people are so enthusiastic about it is that when you take an internal combustion engine car, basically for your 100% of energy, the at most 20% of the energy that you burn will actually turn the wheels. The rest is lost in combustion and in heat. Now, with an electric, minimum 80% of the power into it will turn the wheels. So it is a fundamentally more efficient way of moving anything from point A to point B. Probably the only thing we can't really electrify is aviation, but that's another day story. Okay, there's loads of comments coming in from listeners. Sean from Galway says, my wife bought an electric car last summer. Her annual mileage is 35,000 kilometres due to her job. In diesel, costs broke down to 580 euro per month. The electric cost is 180 euro per month. Uh, that's a 400 euro a month saving. That's five grand a year, Matt. Also, the electric car is much, much more comfortable. But here's another one who says the tyres on an ID3, that's presumably your Tesla second no, an ID3 is a Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay, well, an ID3 is an electric car. 200 euro a pop, driving electric for three years, going back to diesel before the warranty expires, nothing but problems with my computer on wheels. Okay, well, you should be on warranty. So if you're, if you're having a problem with your computer on wheels, you should go and get it fixed. If you have a problem with your laptop, bring it back to the manufacturer. You're on full warranty. A lot of people bring up the issue as well about the carbon footprint of producing the batteries for EVs. Yeah, I mean, I often hear this and I think it's a fair point it needs to be discussed. There's a there's a carbon footprint and there's also an ecological footprint, for example, in, in mining, whether it's lithium or cobalt or whatever. But of course, that same argument applies to mobile phones, laptops, everything else that uses lithium batteries. Uh, so that's simply a fact of life that if you manufacture a, you know, one and a half ton uh, diesel car mat, right, there is a there is a manufacturing footprint in that, a carbon footprint. Now, over the life of that one and a half ton car, it will 
uh, on average, that one and a half ton car will produce about three tons of carbon dioxide for every year it's on the road. So let's say that car stays on the road for 15 years. That car will, on, apart from its manufacturing, will emit about 45 tons of CO2 over its lifetime. Now, the manufacturing impact of building a single EV is probably a bit higher. It is maybe 50% higher than that car, but the amount of emissions on the road is a tiny, tiny fraction. And that's the difference. Okay, one other thing just to finish up with. Tell us about the discovery of plastic rocks on a remote island. Yes, I know this does sound a little uh, little surreal. Yeah, this is an island called, it's a volcanic island uh, off Brazil called Trinidad. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Trini- Trinidad, perhaps. And re- this is an absolutely remote uninhabited island. The only people, Matt, who set foot on it are the Brazilian Navy. And in fact, their operatives there are specifically to protect the wildlife. So, for example, it's one of the world's most important conservation spots for a particular species of green turtle. Thousands of them arrive there every year. Now, (laughs) what they've found in this incredibly remote region is that plastics are washing up uh, on the the beach. And because it's a volcanic island, uh, in places it's so hot that the, the actual beach gets so hot that the plastics are melting into a sort of a, to use a technical word, a blob. Although the actual word they use is called a plastiglomerate, right? So these are basically blobs. And essentially, it, it, the way they, the researchers described it, they said pollution has reached geology. Now, if either our... our um, descendants many, many centuries forward or aliens visiting what's, you know, our charred remains, whatever way it pans out. In the future, long after this version of civilization is gone, what we will find in our, in our fossil record, Matt, are things like plastiglomerates. It's, it's, it's a sad indictment. John Gibbons, as ever, thank you. We'll see you again next week. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-